your Bibles now to the book of 1 Thessalonians. As we continue our study, our book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. This letter to the Thessalonian church is a letter that expresses Paul's gratitude, but not only that, it is a defense, a vindication of his ministry as he writes in defense of his integrity, things that have come into the church, insinuations that have come from individuals who have tried to discredit him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The scriptures read, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority." Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your holy word, which endures forever. We pray, O Father, that your spirit would illumine our minds and indwell us and give us insight into your word, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. In the New Testament, it repeatedly encourages us to live a life that is above reproach, to live a life that is blameless. Otherwise, people may question our integrity and maybe even our legacy that we leave behind. The author of the book entitled The Power of Integrity writes, quote, The uncompromising spirit of Olympic sprinter and Scotsman Eric Liddell was made famous by the award-winning film Chariots of Fire. For months, Liddell trained to run the 100-meter dash at the Paris Olympics in 1924. Sports writers across Britain predicted he would win, but when the schedules were announced, Liddell discovered that the heats for his race were to be run on a Sunday. Because he believed he would dishonor God by competing on the Lord's Day, he refused to enter the race. Eric's fans were stunned. Some who previously praised him called him a fool, but he stood firm. Professor Neil Campbell, a fellow student athlete at the time, describes Liddell's decision. Quote, Liddell was the last person to make a song and dance about that sort of thing. He just said, I'm not running on a Sunday, and that was that. And he would have been very upset if anything much had been made of it at the time. We thought it was completely in character, and a lot of athletes were quietly impressed by it. They felt here was a man who was prepared to stand for what he thought was right, 
without interfering with anyone else and without being dogmatic. Unlike the film version, the book continues, which takes a dr- dramatic license with the facts, Liddell knew about the heat schedule. Months before the Olympics, he also declined to run in the 4x100 and the 4x400-meter relays, races which he had qualified for because their heats were also to be run on Sunday. Since he was such a popular athlete, the British Olympic Committee asked if he would train to run in the 400 meters, a race he had performed well in before, but one that he had never considered seriously. He decided to train for it and discovered that he was a natural at that distance. His wife, Florence, said of his decision, quote, Eric always said that the great thing for him was that when he stood by his principles and refused to run in the 100 meters, he found that the 400 meters was really his race. He would not have known otherwise, unquote. He went on to win the 400 meters and set a world record in the process, and God honored his uncompromising spirit. But what was there about Eric Liddell that gave him the resolve to stand firm with his decision in spite of the pressure from the authorities and the press. The filmmakers of Chariots of Fire unknowingly provided the answer in a scene that dramatized the British Olympic authorities' attempt to change Liddell's mind about running in the 100 meters. After their unsuccessful attempts, one of the men comments, quote, The lad is a true man of principle and a true athlete. His speed is a mere extension of his life, its force. We sought to sever this running from himself, unquote. And in spite of the writer's labeling of God as a generic force, the sentiment is true. The Christian life cannot be lived apart from God, and to do so is to compromise your very being. The author continues on and says that's where the power of integrity begins. Only as you and I derive from our being, our relationship with Jesus Christ, can we ever hope to live like He did, to suffer like He did, to withstand adversity like He did, and to die like He did, all without compromising. We all live in a world of compromise in a society that has abandoned moral standards and Christian principles in favor of expediency or pragmatism, the author writes. The underlying philosophy is based on accomplishing goals by whatever means are necessary. This self-centered perspective should be or have as its models, if it works for you, do it. A notion that inevitably leads to compromise of conscience and conviction. Because compromise is so prevalent in our society, you could say we no longer have a national conscience, guilt, And remorse are non-factors in determining behavior, unquote. And it is so very difficult today to find things that we see, especially on the news, in the sports world, from doping and cycling to the recent verdict in the NFL casting a shadow upon what's happened, or the use of money by politicians and the scrutiny that will come should one enter that arena. In the fall of 2012, there was a man named Bismarck Meseth in an article in the Seattle Times written by Eric Laxitis. A recent immigrant he was, Bismarck, to the U.S. from Ghana. He was working part-time as a courtesy associate 
at Walmart right here near Seattle. As he collected shopping carts, he found personal items, oftentimes what people would leave behind in the shopping carts, keys, credit cards, and wallets. But on an October afternoon, just a couple of years ago, a few years ago, it was a white envelope. And that white envelope had a clear plastic window in it. And he could see that that envelope was bulging with cash, cash to the amount of $20,000. He could have used some of that cash. He came to the U.S., you see, to study business administration so he could return to Ghana so he would be able to help his mother with her five small seamstress shops. And he made at Walmart $9.05 per hour. It would take him a long time to fulfill that particular dream. But Mensa said he could never consider keeping the money. Quote, my conscience wouldn't allow it, and I couldn't even drive home if I did that. So instead, he ran after the husband and wife who left the cash. And as it turns out, they, they were going to use the cash for a down payment on a home. She said, Mensa said she was like, wow. And tears were coming out, and she took some money and tried to reward me, and I said, no, 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 I'm all right. He received Walmart's Integrity of Action Award and a promotion, and now he, makes, he works full-time for $9.19 an hour with benefits. But for him, the real rewards are more internal. Seattle Times reports he has this to say about his job. In the parking lot, people chat, tell you their problems, you see that a person is not happy, I tell them, God is in control, everything is okay. You know, one of the main reasons why Paul writes this particular letter is not just to express his gratitude towards God for the lives of the Thessalonians, but it is to defend his integrity, to vindicate his ministry from people who had come into the church. Because, you see, the missionaries were always in danger of course, externally from the false religions and the mobs. But when they can't kill you, they decide that they're going to discredit you. People had come in, and perhaps there were people in the church. Somehow, some way, they'd begun to insinuate that Paul was not a man of integrity, that his teaching was out of motives that were impure, that his teaching not only was out of impure motives, but they were outrightly wrong, false. And so here in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he defends his integrity because it is so very important. He defends his integrity by reminding them of all that he had done. And he begins by outlining his effectiveness or the effect that the gospel had on them. And then he goes on to talk about his own boldness, the methods he used, as well as the motives that he had. And so as we look into this particular text in verse 1, we see Paul giving his answer to his critics by outlining, first of all, his effectiveness, or I should say the gospel's effectiveness in their own lives in verse 1. For it says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
In other words, he says to them, and he reminds them, you yourselves know, and this is a repeated thing, he, he continues to remind them of the things that he had taught them or the things that they had seen in his life in chapter 2, verse 2, as you know, in verse 9, for you recall, verse 10, you are witnesses, verse 11, just as you know, Paul reminds them of his past actions. Do you remember the things that I taught you and the way that I acted towards you? He calls them brethren, and as he is in solidarity to, with them, and he says, our coming to you was not in vain. That idea of vain could mean empty-handed or false or aimless or whatnot, but I think what Paul was trying to communicate here was that his coming to them was not without effect, worthless, empty, like some showman who comes into town, and then after he leaves, there is nothing to show for it. In chapter 1, that entire chapter outlines the effect of the gospel upon these people. And he's gushing with thanksgiving, not to himself, not to give himself a pat on the back, but gushing in gratitude towards God because of what God has done. He is so very grateful because their faith, love, and hope had come and manifested itself in their, their works, their labor, and their steadfastness, and their strength of their faith. And their testimony had gone out throughout all of Macedonia, such that others were talking about them, how they had turned from idols to serving a true and living God, and how like a trumpet blast, they were a testimony to all. Their coming, Paul says in verse 1, was not in any sort of vain means, but when they dispensed the word of God and the gospel, it had the effect that God had sovereignly dictated that it would. And we can be sure too. We can be sure too when you teach the Word of God. God will use His Word to accomplish whatever purposes that He has set out for it. Isaiah 55, 11 reminds us in which God says, So will my Word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When the Word of God is rightly divided and rightly shared, it will accomplish the purposes of God. We may think that we have no impact or see no change, but God uses His own Word, the power of the Spirit of God to convict, to correct, condemn, whatever it may be. To some people, it is judgment when they don't respond. To others, it is a blessing and an encouragement when they hear and are strengthened in their faith. It deepens their understanding of God. No matter what we may think, whether or not it is having any impact or effect, we're to dispense the Word of God, to share what God has taught us, to share what His Word says. It's like this past Easter when we had the testimonies, and I remember Amos who shared his testimony about how he had first heard the gospel, how he had first heard the gospel, and it was through Nathan who, who took the fundamentals of the faith, a workbook, a Bible study guide, and began to meet with he and his brother. And I remember those days because it was so very difficult from Nathan's perspective. It was so very difficult to meet even once. It would be one month, and then they might wait another two months before they would meet again and have a study. And sometimes he'd wonder if he's pulling teeth or if they're even interested or even if they're listening, and I don't even think they finished the book. But it was in the first chapters of the book that the gospel was laid out very clearly. And he remembered that. And God used it in his life. 
and the sharing of His Word, it has its effect. Maybe you teach Sunday school. Maybe you teach Sunday school and you're with a bunch of kids and they're seemingly not listening. Maybe they aren't. I don't know. But you share the Word of God and who knows? There might be a little boy there that might have been just like me who wasn't always listening, but listening enough to know that God was teaching me something. Because the Word of God is active and it is powerful and it is sharp and it convicts and it will accomplish its purposes. So we continue to share and knowing that the Word of God will do its work through the Spirit of God. Paul's ministry here, his coming to the Thessalonians was not in vain. It was in fact very effective as he continued to share with boldness, verse 2. But after it says, verse 2, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So before they came to Thessalonica, they were in a place called Philippi, a city called Philippi. What happened there? If you turn in your Bibles back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, we look at Acts chapter 16, verse 16, on to 24, gives us a profile of what happened before he came to Thessalonica. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. The text of the scriptures chronicle and read this way. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who were bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore the robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's what happened. They shared the gospel. They cast out a demon and they were beaten. They were beaten, thrown into prison, put in stocks. They had suffered and the word suffered there in First Thessalonians means mistreated. The word for, for suffering is related to physical abuse. And then they were mistreated there, it says, being uh, publicly disgraced. Not only were they physically beaten, but they were publicly disgraced, dragged before everyone, called false and abused, named. And then they were humiliated. They were beaten and thrown into prison, causing an uproar. Now, Paul and Silas, they certainly weren't being politically correct, certainly weren't being people who were high on the popularity list. They weren't being diplomatic to all parties who were there. They certainly weren't being treated as 
people who thought well, by people who thought well of Christians, yet even after suffering, they still continued in the next city to preach the the gospel with boldness. And they continued on after Thessalonica to go to Berea and continue to preach boldness, boldly, in our God, it says. That's where their confidence came from, to continue to boldly proclaim what was true, to boldly proclaim with courage what was true, and that is the gospel, because their confidence was in God. Their confidence was in God, because you see, if we look for our support, if we look for our encouragement from how people may respond, they would have quit after the first beating. They would have quit after the first mob. They would have quit because opinions of people will change. The perspective of people are often fickle. Our confidence is in God, then we continue on to continue to teach in integrity, to have doctrinal integrity in proclaiming the Word of God. Kayla Mueller, you probably heard of her if you watch the evening news. Even a mention of her was on TV last night. She's 26 years old. She was captured by ISIS. Just a few months ago, on February 10th, 2015, U.S. officials confirmed that Muslims' extremists had murdered her while in captivity. But it was about a year ago, in 2014, when Kayla was a captor, she wrote to her family. And that letter begins with her assurance that she had been treated well. She's in a, quote, safe location, completely unharmed healthy. And that 26-year-old aid worker goes on to apologize touchingly to her family for the suffering that she might be putting them through because of her captivity. But then comes her central proposition. She said, quote, I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I have come to a place and experience where, in every sense of the word, I've surrendered myself to our Creator, because literally, there was no else. She was involved in a campus ministry at Northern Arizona University. She goes on to relate, by God and by your prayers, I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. She adds, I have been shown in darkness, light, Plus, have learned that even here in prison, one can be free. I am grateful. I've come to see that there is good in every situation. Sometimes we just have to look for it. She concluded, please be patient. Give your pain to God. I know you want me to remain strong. That is exactly what I am doing. Do not fear for me. Continue to pray as will I. By God's will, we will be together soon. All my everything, Kayla. Unquote. It's your confidence and soul courage in God. Do you trust in Him and Him alone for the things that we need to do day in and day out? Or do we trust our own abilities, our own intellect, the things that we are able to do with boldness in God, confidence in God, because God was the only one there as she was in captivity. It was to be. 
that her confidence and courage and her encouragement even to her family was to trust in God, was to trust in God. And with boldness, because of their confidence in God, Paul continued to minister, to preach to the Thessalonians amid much opposition, even after he'd been beaten and put into prison, even after being humiliated in public. He continued to do his ministry in Thessalonica. You've got to believe not only in what you're preaching, not only in what you're teaching, but to believe that the Word of God is powerful and that God is pleased by what you are doing, that you're mandated and commanded by God to continue to faithfully dispense His Word. Even after preaching in Lystra, Acts 14 tells us a number of cities before Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And then what did he do? Verse 20 of chapter 14. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city where they had just dragged him out of to continue to do what God has called him to do. Where the average person will run, the person whose confidence in God will stand and fight. Paul defends his ministry by saying how effective it was, and secondly, by his boldness, because obviously if one was a charlatan, they would have tucked tail and run. His methods, thirdly, verse 3, for exhortation does not come from error or impurity or deceit. His teaching and his ministry weren't any form of error, meaning any form of false teaching or false living. That's the idea behind error. Impurity, that word comes from a catharsis, from which we get the word catharsis. Catharsis means to clarify and cleanse or purify, but you negate it with an A and it becomes something that is impure, and it could refer to some physical or social impurity, but here the word itself primarily refers to sexual uncleanness. Because you see, in that time, in the pagan religions of that time, they were often intermingled with immorality, with fornication, with prostitution. And if you wanted to connect with the gods of that time, it was that which was done through temple prostitutes, through immorality. In Revelation 2.20, the Lord said to the church at Thyatira, quote, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And so false teachers of that day were often involved with immorality and even you can find that today in some cults and some cult leaders and false religions, the immorality that is there. Paul says his teaching wasn't by way of error, it wasn't false, it wasn't by way of of impurity or immorality, and it wasn't by way of deceit, deceit. Word literally means a fish hook or a trap or a trick because false teachers of that day would oftentimes show some type of sorcery or magic or some type of theatrics, charlatans selling snake oil and show some sort of miracle or trick in order to deceive somebody. Paul's coming wasn't of that type. There have been so many, so many things that come from without and within the church, 
false and erroneous things that have come into Christianity. It seems that it's almost nonstop from philosophies of postmodernism or secular humanism to secret sensitivity movement or the prosperity gospel or the new apostolic reformation movement today, modern-day prophets who will tell prophecies that are erroneous and those who simply no longer believe that the Bible is the word, the very word of God. Wave after wave, there are things that will come in that will challenge the faith of those who trust in the Word of God and have their faith in the Word of God. And that is why Paul warns his son in the faith, Timothy. He says to him in his last epistle that he is a dying man. He's about to leave this earth. He's being poured out as a drink offering. And he tells young Timothy, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus in 2 Timothy 1, retain Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure that has been entrusted to you. He tells them later on, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The methods of these missionaries wasn't to deceive or by way of error. It was that which was true. It was that which was effective and bold. And he tells Timothy as well, you hold on to that which is true and you teach that which is true. It doesn't matter what happens to you on the outside. And you do it in his defense. He declares his motives, verse 4 through 6. But just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. They'd been entrusted. They'd been entrusted as, as messengers with the gospel. To be entrusted with something so precious and the gospel which was theirs to share, not theirs to keep to themselves. Paul reiterates this in 1 Timothy. According to the glorious gospel of our blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Or in Titus chapter 1. But at the proper time manifested, even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. And we too, we too have been given the Word of God, the Gospel of God, not to keep to ourselves, but to share, and we have been entrusted with a duty. That duty is to share the Word of God, despite what it may seem outside that we might face in terms of difficulties. Because you see, it can be very difficult these days. It can be very difficult. And especially difficult if we were people who were seeking to please men. But Paul wasn't. So we speak, he says, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. It's especially difficult in the public realm, but it is not difficult if we seek to please God. At the age of 26, there was a man named Ken Elzinga. He joined the faculty of the University of Arizona or University of Virginia. A tenured colleague had told him and warned him about being explicit about his faith. It would hinder his career. Elzinga was stunned one day to see a flyer with his face on it placed in a prominent 
campus location. There was a campus ministry that had posted it to advertise a talk he, was, he had agreed to give. He was a young believer, relatively young believer at the age of 26, teaching on the faculty of a large public university. Would fellow professors think less of him? Might this hurt his tenure, his experience, etc.? That night, it was a difficult night for his own soul. He returned to campus, and he secretly took that poster down. The next morning, the Lord convicted him, and he put the poster back up after hours in which he had searched his own soul. And he concluded this, that his life was not about career ambition, but about faithful discipleship. And that being private about his faith was not an option. What would be our choice? Career ambition or about your faith and discipleship? Well, in the four decades since that time, Elizinga had been named Professor of the Year multiple times, is still a speaker in high demand, and he will be the first to say that serving only one master has been liberating. Why? Because pleasing an audience of one makes one less anxious, less sensitive to criticism, and more courageous, because in doing so, we become more secure and complete less, compete less for our honor. You see, when we try to please people, try to cater, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to offend them by sharing the gospel, whose honor are we really out for? Are we out because we, we want to be well-liked? We don't want them to not like us? Are we out because of God's honor? Why are we doing what we do? Why do we share or not share? Do we hide behind this idea of, well, my ambition for my career is more important? Or when somebody asks me, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Would you like to know more? Paul's ambition was to speak in order to please God, not please people. That's what the text tells us. And he doesn't shy away from things that are difficult. After attacking them with a denunciation or a curse in the book of Galatians, he he says in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6 to 9, Paul writes, For I am now, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Or if I am still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He didn't come with flattering speech. God hates flattery compliments with ulterior motives, that is. Psalm 12.3 says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things. He didn't come, the text says too, with a pretext for greed. He wasn't some sort of huckster, just as he said in the Ephesian elders when he left the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, he said, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and the men who were with me. Today, that is exemplified, that greed, by a number of people who come and preach the gospel, who exalt wealth, 
They have an incredible influence around the world. In the book Christianity in Crisis, Hank Hennegraaff writes, nowhere is such cultural conformity more important than in the faith version of the incarnation of Christ. In literature and tape, radio and television, prosperity peddlers present a Jesus who looks remarkably like themselves. He lives in a big house. He's decked out in designer clothes. He has a big, huge donor base and is said to have so much money, he needs a treasure. For some televangelists, the notion of a wealthy Jesus is merely a dogmatic assertion. For Duplantis' Jesus, as well as for Hagee's, that is, Jesse Duplantis and John Hagee, whom you can see still on TV, is a biblically defensible argument. As such, Hagee points to the Gospel of John as proof positive that Jesus had a big house. Says Hagee, John 1.38 says, Jesus turned to those who were following and said, come with me. And they said, where dwellest thou? He said, come and see. And Jesus took the crowd with him to stay at his house. That meant it was a big house. Hagee also argues that Jesus wore designer clothes, as he puts it. Jesus had a seamless robe, so valuable that the Roman soldiers gambled for it at the cross. It was a designer robe. Prosperity preachers are so committed to presenting a Jesus who wears a Rolex, they are willing to do whatever it takes to sell this myth to their parishioners. Oral Roberts wrote a book entitled, How I Learned Jesus Was Not Poor. And Frederick Price will say, to get you out of this malaise of thinking Jesus and his disciples were poor, the Bible says he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. That's the reason why I drive a Royal Rolls Royce. I'm following in Jesus' steps, unquote. Paul and his missionaries had no pretext for greed. They had no pretext to come with immoral motives. They didn't come with flattering speech. They didn't come to hope to gain fame and glory from people. They were bold. They were bold, not placing their career as missionaries, not placing their own glory, but desiring to please an audience of one, to please an audience of one. How about us? When we serve, do we want the approval of others? Such a temptation. When we sing, when we play, the special music or whatever it was, we look for the compliments. When we bring food, do we, do we feel bad? We hope that we bring it and everybody will love it, regardless if it's all gone or not. We teach Sunday school a lesson. We tempted to bypass the sensitive issues so that we don't offend so that everybody will be happy, or do we fail to discipline, discipline kids because we want them to be happy and like us? Do we lovingly and kindly, however, confront people when needed? Do we avoid sometimes so many controversies because we don't want others to be upset when it should be a biblical thing that ought to be taught? Or maybe even in this specific passage that is here, are we afraid to share our faith? We hide behind the rules and say, you know what? Somebody asked me if I'm a Christian. I didn't say nothing because our company doesn't allow that sort of a thing. Are we afraid of what people will think of us? Are we afraid that when God has called us to share our faith, that we might be rejected? Dr. John Stott, the late Dr. John Stott, he was the pastor of All Souls Church before he died in 2011. 
gave this one last bit of advice. Very well-known pastor, wrote a number of books and was a godly man, wrote and said or said this bit of advice to his assistant before he died. It was simply, quote, do the hard thing. Do the hard thing. He, you see, he believed that choosing the easy trail, the road most taken, the path of least resistance can only end in mediocrity, even if it comes with praise. And there is a certain generality to that because the road is narrow. The road is narrow. It is hard. The road of discipleship by which Jesus calls us to walk in His way in the integrity of life, to be a person who lives by what they say, is not easy. But pleasing an audience of one is freeing. Pleasing an audience of one is freeing. Pleasing people wasn't Paul's motive. Even after he'd been beat up, jailed, even after he'd been suffered for the sake of Christ, even though he had continued to do what he did and continued to suffer more, no, he didn't come to them with greed or flattery. He didn't come with a compromising spirit, just doing what he was called to do, to be faithful to what God has called him to do and be, comes great confidence, great hope. And that, I hope, will be your confidence as well, to please an audience of one. That is integrity. That is pleasing to our God. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your goodness and your grace. Father, so often our own desire is to please others. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be people of integrity. Integrity in our doctrine. Integrity in what we teach. Integrity in what we believe. That we would stand firm for what is true. That we would retain the standard of sound words as Paul had exhorted Timothy to that we would guard the treasure that was entrusted to us. Not only integrity in our doctrine, but integrity in our lives. That we would not have a pretense for greed or a desire to be well-liked, above-liked, and approved by you, O God. For we desire to please an audience of one. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.